all coaches say it's about who finishes. Everybody who's in the game knows it is about who finishes because the people who finish are the guys you trust. Is really what it is. But at the same time, starting is very important to athletes. We can sit here as coaches and say, well, it's not important. The reality is it is important because it is important to athletes and that's the perception. And therefore it is a reality that you have to deal with. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former EuroLeague and G League head coach, Martin Schiller. Coach Schiller is here today to discuss rotations, substitution patterns, and team dynamics, thoughts on teaching closeouts, and we talk practice flow and defending baseline out of bounds during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to both the podcast and our Sunday morning newsletter, where you can access weekly detailed tactical breakdowns and find out more about SG+, a resource and community coaches are calling the best platform to learn, grow, and connect with others. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Martin Schiller. Coach, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. We're really excited to talk to you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, Coach, we're going to get right into some tactical stuff with you. We've been itching to pick your brain on a bunch of stuff, but we want to start with substitution. So love to know your thoughts and your process, both before a game and during a game on patterns of substitutions with your guys. That's a good topic. In a way, it's an under-discussed topic, right? If you think about it, on all platforms, essays, books, literature, whatever it may be, it's not really discussed a lot. Right. In relation to other tactical things, it's interesting. For me, like just talking the basics of it, I would say it starts with the decision of how deep do you want to rotate, generally speaking. Do you want to rotate 10 guys, nine guys, or eight guys? The deeper your roster, the more challenging the subbing becomes. The smaller your roster, the easier the subbing is. The data that I know of uh, says that the highest winning percentages come with eight-man rotations. But the reality of it is in longer seasons, right? Like let's say an NBA season or a European season, especially if you play in international competitions like EuroLeague, EuroCup, Champions League, whatever, consistently going with an eight-man rotation will be very difficult because it will wear everybody down. So the reality probably is a nine-man rotation. Me personally, I've always liked 10-man rotations. To me, the kicker is that if you add one more, the 11 doesn't work. Like an 11-man rotation is very, very difficult, let's say. Especially in a 40-minute game, I would say in North America, the 48-minute game helps a little bit if you want to rotate one more. But even there, it's I want to say it's almost not possible. And this is always an interesting conversation for me with front office, especially also with fellow coaches, you know, or, or your coaching staff, the conversation about, well, why can't we play him? Let's play him five minutes. Let's play him and let's give him a chance, right? And 
it's just very, very difficult. And, and the explanation for me is, let's say you play a 10-man rotation. So let's say for each position, you've got two players, right? Starter and a backup player. And now you bring in the 11th guy. So let's say it's this is the third guy on one position. And the reality is this, and you start after five minutes, let's talk FIBA, 40-minute game. Five-minute stint, you get your sub in, right? So the backup player on that position. And now you want to create some minutes for this third guy on that position, so the 11th guy. So where do you sub in? Well, probably in the beginning of the second quarter. Okay, sounds good. Now this guy plays, and probably with him it depends on how does he play in order to get a couple more minutes or not. But the problem comes now where you want to sub in your starter because now he's been sitting for eight minutes or he's been sitting for nine minutes. Now you play your starter. Now the last couple of minutes in the second quarter, you give to your backup guy on that position. So by wanting to help one guy, the 11th guy, or by wanting to help the group because you believe playing this 11th guy is a good thing, you really take away rhythm of the two others and therefore you don't help anybody like you're trying to help one guy with a group by doing this but you really hurt it and that to me is the explanation why 11 doesn't work and it's no rocket science but that's it you know and i know if you don't think about it it's very easy to say well why don't you play this guy but that's the explanation to me so that's where it kind of starts and then as you move forward and think about patterns of subbing of course, it's going to be important to kind of figure out, okay, who am I going to play how long? Is my starter somebody I want to play for 28 minutes? Like, is he a 28-minute player? Well, what does this leave for the backup guy, right? And those things I want to say are the basics of like thinking about this topic. Coach, how do you determine if your starter is a 28-minute player or a 32-minute player or 25? I guess what goes into that decision with your starter first and how long you want to play him? I would say how good he is and (laughs) how long you want him on the floor. (laughs) Having said that, all of these thoughts of predetermining like who's going to play how long are not set in stone, right? But they should help you think about rotations. I want to say it like that. It's a little bit like you prepare a game and you know you've done your scouting job and you know what the opponent is going to run in the half court and you probably prepare to you know defend against it so you take three plays of the opponent and you prepare these three plays and you know how you want to defend them etc etc and it's kind of the same with the subbing part right you've got an idea and this idea should help you be prepared for the game but it's not set in stone like the fact that you know although you've done your work with the scouting the opponent may actually not run those three things you know so Also, sorry, I want to say this, depends on the history of a player a little bit. So when I got to Jalgiris, for me, learning the team was very important quickly. So for me, also looking at certain players on the team, it was important to just see how long had they been playing in the last couple of seasons. Like, there's a truth to that. Okay, like, hey, this guy has kind of developed as he's aged into a 15-minute player from a 25-minute player. Well, perhaps there's a truth to it. So that kind of, yeah. just looking at the history of things, especially if athletes are older, kind of helps a little. Coach, I'd love to go back to something you said about group dynamics and how many players you may or may not play 
and how that affects the whole team. And I, I think it's a really interesting conversation where you say, you know, if you play, let's say, a 10th guy five minutes just to get him in the game, but then you're taking some minutes away from that maybe seven, eight, nine. And the balance of does it help the group more to have one more guy play a little more minutes or to not play that player, play nine guys more minutes and get a tighter rotation? And maybe the decision-making process that you would think about when doing something like that. Exactly what you said. First of all, my belief is what you just said. Like It's rather going to be towards shortening the rotation, therefore taking away something from one player, right? Talking about the dynamic of the whole thing, um, like it helps thinking about it early on because you can, as a coach, communicate to players clearly before. So it's always helped me telling this player on the edge, right, who may play or may not play, to tell him he's not going to play, he's probably not going to play today. Always been good for me. No player likes to hear it, of course not. But at least later on, you know, they will say, well, he told me, you know, and he told me straight up. And I strongly believe in that. And I strongly believe in the fact that also strengthens the relationship between you and that athlete, you know, and it's just a level of trust, you know, although again, he doesn't want to hear it in that moment for sure not, right? Thinking about like the flow of the game and substitution patterns when the game is going on and let's say, you know, beforehand you've predetermined, hey, we like the starter to play somewhere between 28 and 32 minutes, but then the game starts and let's say you have a group that's either not playing well or on the flip side, playing really well. When you think about subbing, breaking up that unit or not based on their on-court performance? I would say, yeah, well, right there, you know, again, this comes back to the point of not being married to what you've thought about before the game, you know, that's kind of it. But on the flip side, also, I want to say sometimes coaches tend to overreact, right? So there is something happening that you don't like right there. Perhaps you don't want to overreact, break your complete subbing pattern due to one overreaction, you know, and then start to scram. It's a fine line. Now, the one thing in Europe especially, and that to me is the big kicker where subbing patterns are more difficult in Europe than in North America, are the personal fouls due to the fact that you've got one less personal foul. Two personal fouls in the first half are kind of crucial and you want to probably pull a player out. Uh, Whereas in the G League and in the NBA with a personal foul extra, you know, it really doesn't matter. It rarely happens that somebody fouls out actually. That is a very big kicker in this whole thing. I hope that answers the question. I think as we create sub patterns, you know, if I bring practical examples, like for me, when I was an assistant coach in the BBL in Germany, while creating scouting reports, I always also created sub patterns of the opponent just to learn the opponent. You know, obviously you want to know who starts and then you want to know, hey, like, you know, where are the first subs, who comes in, where does the designated shooter comes in? Well, when he comes in, then the play package is called by the opponent change. So you can anticipate and just helps you prepare the game, right? I always kind of like that. And when I got to North America, it kind of turned. So we created sub patterns for ourselves, right? Which is very common in the NBA and in the G League. Why is it common and why is it needed in the G League, especially because of minute distributions given by uh, front office, you know, and also minute restrictions given by the health and strength team, you know. So what does this mean? This means you've got an assigned player from the NBA. So let's say I've got an assigned player from the Jazz and it is 
defined that he will have to play 28 minutes because we want to develop him and we want to guarantee him minutes. And that's what it is, you know. Then there may be restrictions for injured players, which are much sharper in the NBA and in the G League than in Europe, where if the restriction given by the health team, you know, by the physiotherapists, by the strength coaches is 15 minutes because somebody's coming back from an injury, then that is it. And you're not going to go over it, you know. Mm -hmm. Then front office decisions of, I'm talking G League, like who's going to finish it's important much more important who's going to finish than who's going to start because we want to see this young player finishing the game now you've got a lot of moving pieces to put together a subpack right and i always had an assistant coach do it like and they got really good at it and they dictate the game kind of right they strongly dictate your preparation for after timeout plays especially with mandatory timeouts, knowing where timeouts come. In the EuroLeague, it's very similar. With the TV timeouts, you know where the timeouts are coming. And if you have your sub pattern down, you kind of know who you're going to have on the floor. So you can prepare your stuff coming out of timeouts pretty well, just as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Now, again, are you going to be married to it? No. Is it always going to happen like that? No especially in Europe, not because of the fouls, but it is a piece of preparation and the subbing experience and the pattern creation experience was a great like exercise. And it kind of makes you think about rotations much more, which players work well together. And then that backed up with data is really interesting and how often the eye test is incorrect, you know? And so to me, that is very interesting stuff. We've had interesting situations where in the G League, we had two straight five men who needed minutes, you know, like Tony Bradley, the backup center for Chicago right now, and Willie Reed, who plays in EuroCup right now, NBA vet, right? I had both on the team, and, and we needed 28 minutes for both, which meant we had to play both together for eight minutes a game, you know? So we kind of kicked those eight, four minutes in each half out in the beginning of the game, which totally changed the way we play in the G League, which is a small mobile league, playing real old school, slow paced with two five men was an interesting experience. And, you know, those challenges and then thinking about, well, how do I actually wiggle this correctly? And then the one of the two guys, well, he's going to sub out after four minutes, right? Well, if you know that early on, it is much easier to tell the guy, listen, like, you know, you're going to start and I'm going to sub you out really quickly. And you kind of come in roundabout there again it's not a bad conversation to have because then the athlete doesn't look at you after four minutes of yeah. playing kind of like that you know why are you suddenly <laughs> right it's just yeah. interesting stuff you know coach how do you view the starting lineup versus the finishing lineup it's a great conversation right it's like all coaches say it's about who finishes everybody who's in the game knows it is about who finishes because the people who finish are the guys you trust is really what it is and in the beginning of the game, you can fake start people. But at the same time, starting is very important to athletes. We can sit here as coaches and say, well, it's not important. The reality is it is important, right? Like Because it is important to athletes, and that's the perception. And therefore, it is a reality that you have to deal with, right? So it's really a good topic. If you think about the pattern, like pattern-wise, and again, this was the exercise like I kind of had in North America, was if you say your starters are going to be the guys who finish mm -hmm. probably they are there may be somebody else in there out of five one guy maybe switched around probably right and if you think like that then 
it's always tricky to organize the subbing in the second half. And again, this does not really occur so strongly in Europe because the fouling like just breaks sub patterns. Yeah. But in America, it kind of leads to the fact that, well, if your starting five will end the game, this means you start them properly in the second half. And then some guys will probably play in three stints because like you'll star, you'll sub, you'll play again yourself and then you'll finish the game yeah. right otherwise it doesn't work because otherwise you start them yourself in the first half you start yourself you play again you sub, and in the first half often the second unit ends the game mm -hmm. like ends the half which i personally never have a problem like we also discuss about that who should end the half doesn't matter to me at all like generally speaking but in the second half if you want the starters to end the game Some of them will have to play in three stints, right? Yeah. Or you can play in two stints, but that would mean the backup players play really long, right? You play five <laughs> minutes, now you play 10 minutes, the player, and then play five, which is kind of unrealistic too. And just thinking about that is kind of interesting stuff because a lot of guys are not good at playing, or it's not easy to play in three stints. Like a lot of guys don't like to play in three yeah. stints because it's like short periods of time. You don't really get rhythm, you know? It's just stuff to think about, you know? All of this is a little bit theoretic and a little bit preparing for games and doesn't reflect what the reality of a game then always gives you, right? But it can be helping, you know? And to me, again, it's really interesting. Like, if you think tactically about the subbing pieces, let's say you've got a matchup that you want to have covered, for me, especially defensive. To give you an example, let's say uh, last year in Valencia, they had Kalinic playing the three. They played a lot and generated a lot through him on the block at the three, you know, which obviously in Europe you have more than in North America. And you've got to defend, you know, like, and he threw a lot of fouls and he made a lot of plays from there. So we decided that we had to play our stronger three man, Nigel Hayes, on him consistently. Well, okay, so if Kalinic plays at the three for 25 minutes, this means Nigel will play 25 minutes. All of his 25 minutes, he'll play at the three. This again means he's probably not going to play too much at the four. This again means you're probably going to play somebody else more at the four. Augustine Rupert, who is a five-four. So we play him more at the four. So now minutes open up at the five. You know, probably we're going to play a backup at the third string five more in that game to fill up a couple minutes and so on. You know, it trickles down. It's got like chain reactions. That's what I'm saying. And in that situation too, coach, are you taking away minutes then from maybe a three or a two? Since you got to play Nigel Hayes is more at the three. Yes, yes. And that's it. That's where the chain reaction comes in. And that's why it's not that easy yeah. to, well, why did you play that? Right? Like you've got to think about it. And also to your point, if you're going to play this player, Nigel Hayes, consistently against Kalinich for 25 minutes at the three, this also means in the moment where Kalinich goes off the floor, you have to sub Nigel Hayes. Mm -hmm. Like, you cannot waste one minute of his against anybody else. Why not? Well, because you've got your backup three man, Arturas Milaknes, one of the best shooters in Europe, sitting there. And he's got to play because he's important for your team. Like, you need those 15 minutes of shooting, you know? So you cannot waste one minute. And it's just important. Another example, Justin, I think examples kind of open, like, the thought process, right? Like, if we played a final series in Lithuania last year and the opponent, Ritas, uh, they played their top scorer off the bench, Andrew Godelak. And 
we felt we needed our best perimeter defender on him, which was Tom Walker. But Tom had been in out of 82 games, Tom Walker started 78, 79. So he was like the designated starter of the team, no question. And so in that final series, we decided to play him off the bench, you know, which for him was not a problem, for the group was not a problem. Like, you know, but we were thinking, well, do we start him and then just play him longer as good a luck hits the floor at the five minute mark? Do we just play him longer? And we came to the conclusion that it doesn't work because that means we play walk up 10 minutes straight, which can work. Why not? But it means that we kill our backup point guard, who's really important for the group, right? So we kind of have, like, yeah. and again, it's no rocket science, but it is kind of, I think it's interesting to think about. And I think it is impactful, you know, at times. Coach, when talking about lineups and rotations, how much do analytics or player efficiency stats or things like that play into what you might look at to determine the value of like that eighth, ninth, tenth man, where they're obviously not going to maybe have the minutes to produce a lot of, say, points or like a lot of big time stats, but you still are trying to find ways to make sure that you know they're valuable to your team and that you can communicate to them, hey, you are helping us because of this or that. Like, is there anything that you would look at to determine the value of a, say, deeper bench player? I think this is a topic for itself. Like we go with the stats and how do you evaluate with stats and advanced stats, et cetera, et cetera. What we've done, this doesn't answer the question, but what we have done is after five games, we always had like our stats guy, whoever it may be, give a short report on everybody individually, like for the coaches, obviously, you know, just to have a quick look at things you know like where are there and, and then there is the base stuff right the base numbers that okay show you okay is he shooting the basketball well or not right this has always kind of helped me stay on track especially as the season is moving on numbers sometimes take out emotions right and i'm not a big numbers guy but like sometimes numbers just take out emotions and they teach you something so it's like I had this conversation, like, I really don't, I don't know, the eye test, I don't like him and him together. Like, I don't like that unit because there's not a lot of tactical control. Well, then there's a lineup efficiency that shows that those three guys are actually really good together. And this gives me a little bit more confidence of, like, sticking with them. And then in the game, as one mistake happens, doesn't make me overreact. Those kind of things have helped me in the past, but I cannot, I'm sorry, I cannot pinpoint like one thing. The reason for the question is, you know, when the guy's only playing, let's say eight to 15 minutes, you know, what would you realistically expect production wise out of someone that deep in your bench to say, hey, I'm going to keep giving them that 10 to 15 minutes as opposed to maybe trying someone else in that spot? I hear you. I mean, Generally speaking, of course, the per 40 or per 30, per 36 stats are very important. That's really essential. In Germany, we say compare apples with pears, right? Like you can compare 30 minutes of one guy and then put 15 or 8 minutes of the other guy next to each other, right? That doesn't work. As the minutes stack up, as the games stack up, as the sample sizes stack up, looking at the per 40s, per 36 stats is very, very essential. Coach, when you're looking to make a change as far as like maybe take away some minutes and give another player some more minutes, is it something you'll do gradually or right away as terms of like trying to protect the fragility of the group when you're going to basically cut someone's minutes and go in another direction? If you have a team and you start out a season, I'm probably going to kind of give everybody a chance and let them play it out. But 
as a decision is made, the decision will be made and will be communicated. Now, the reality of it is that this like killing a player is easy if, let's say, this one player who's going to be killed Mm -hmm. is just not as good. That's an easy one. Like everybody can see and he will not want to hear it. And even then it's not easy because we're talking about really good players, right? But the difficult part is if you have to kill somebody who is exactly as good as the other guy and you just have to do it for the sake of rotations, what we just talked about, for the sake of giving the other guy the confidence that he's going to play. That's where it gets really tricky. And that's where like, you have to have this overview of this is why we're doing it. And it gets even more difficult to explain, you know. And I think you have to stick with it then for a time to see if this works out. And you cannot like go back because it's very easy. If two guys are the same quality, then if the one guy is messing up, it's easy to go back to the other. But now you're creating exactly the problem that you have. I hope that answers the question. And then also it's like, why don't you play him? Because. Like really, like because of this. And this is very abstract, you know. <laughs> this is not easy to explain. Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. We want to kind of shift now to uh, another conversation about closeouts, teaching the closeouts, part of your overall scheme. And so I guess we'll start there with how you teach closeouts, maybe technically, you know, the way that you sort of introduce them to your team, and then we can kind of go from there. We introduce them to the team with very basic drills, to be honest, like two very basic high school closeout drills, you know, introducing like how we want to close out, which is we call it high school closeout. Two thirds of the way are sprints. One third of the way is chopping your feet. I think it's important, especially against shooters, to have your fingers up early is really important on your closeout, which technically speaking is not an easy thing because you're asking to chop your feet and basically have your hip low, your legs bent, but at the same time, like, you know, have your upper body kind of up and show your fingers early. So technically speaking, that's a little bit challenging, but I think it's really important. I think it's important for shooters to see fingers early. I think it changes a lot. I think if they see the rim, they're just going to shoot. but if they see some fingers early, they're going to sh- think about it. And even if it's only camouflage, you know, but I believe in it. So sprint, chop your feet, two-thirds, one-third, show fingers early. On the closeout, a big topic, technically speaking, to me is keeping feet. In other words, not jumping on shot fakes. Or if you leave your feet, you want to leave them second. So only if the opponent is actually jumping in the air to shoot the basketball. And those things we practice on a consistent basis, like the technique of it, practice on a consistent basis, actually with two drills, like two simple drills, whatever the drill may be, right? But 
consistently because I think they're really important. Pat said it yesterday, like, and it's a common conversation, but the better you can close out, the better a defender you are. It is really a lot to it, right? If you are capable of closing out and contesting a shot and containing a drive at the same time, like now you're pretty good. And that's difficult. Like you don't find a lot of guys who can actually do that. And therefore, it's one huge one-on-one defensive thing. So it's really important, I think, for any defense. How many closeouts are you distinguishing? I mean, I know when there's a non-shooter, you're probably closing out a shooter all the way, but maybe those gray areas where it's a scorer who can shoot, but can put it on the floor. Do you distinguish how you close out to that type of player? So this is more the tactical question of it, which goes hand in hand, which is important. By the way, I think like it's kind of important, no matter which level you're on, like to always kind of stay true to the technical part of things. I kind of believe in that, you know, like you have to be good with your technical things in order to be good and don't assume that people can just do it. Right. Especially like also not on the professional level. So talking about the closeouts on tactical level and for me, closing out very aggressively to the corner is important, like taking away the corner threes. So I call it closing out to the body of the opponent. And we always said in the past that you want to close out to the body on the corner, no matter who the shooter is, because everybody can make the corner three. Like that's kind of our thing tactically in the corner. And then in the past, I've closed out in no middle, no paint stances, you know, basically using the three-point line as your orientation for your feet, but having the inside foot up slightly, right, from a tactical standpoint. So in other words, well, if you're going to get beat, you at least know where you're going to get beat to, and we know where the help is going to come from. And I think from a tactical standpoint, that's really important, especially for not as good defenders, to be honest. Like, so, you know, you kind of help tech tactically, like what a defender cannot do technically and athletically, you try to help tactically. If you get beat, you know where you're going to get beat to. You don't want to, but at least it helps, you know, it should help. And then tactically speaking to the point that you brought up, there will be scouting report hot guys who we define as hot, which will be generally speaking guys who actually shoot the ball better than drive the ball, right? Or guys, you want them to drive the basketball, right? You want them or you define this and it's better for us if he makes a layup than if he shoots a three. So those guys are going to be run off, are going to really be run off. You're going to close out at the body of those guys and show those fingers really early from a tactical standpoint. Then there are mug guys, guys who can shoot where you're really short on your closeouts, which doesn't happen very often, right? Like it's just not no. on the perimeter. Somebody who can really not shoot the ball doesn't happen that often on a certain level. And then to your point of like, what do you do with guys who can just play? It's an honest closeout. It's almost like get it done, right? When you say just close out to the body for that corner or the hot guy, does that mean you're stopping on his hip or what is closing out to his body? It's making him put the ball on the floor, I would say. From the technical standpoint, showing the fingers really early, having those fingers up early, and it is making the guy put the ball on the floor. Don't think about containing a hot guy. Now, in the corner, it is more complex because there I'm really asking for both. Okay, it's getting out there aggressively, no matter who the player is. That's the one thing because the corner three is so high percentage and we say everybody can kind of make it, which is not true, but, you know, to simplify things, right? And then at the same time, you in the corners, you kind of want to be square and keep them in the corner. One thing that, and now it turns into a technical topic again, 
if you're a no middle, no paint team, the corner is, if you're using the three-point line as your orientation for your feet, the three-point line is parallel in the corners to the sideline, right? So you basically want your feet parallel. You are a no middle, no paint team, but you don't want to get beat baseline. You want to be square, much more square than above the break. I think there's a lot also to think about what teams do that, like hedging teams do, right? Like hedging teams mostly close out the corners and they give them in or they take away baseline in order to have the driver drive into the big, not have the big sealed off, which opens up everything on the baseline drive. So I think there is a lot also to, if you could do it from a tactical standpoint, close out the corner and say no baseline. Because the baseline drive opens up so much, right? It opens up the opposite corner three and it opens up a big circling into the paint. It opens up stuff. And I think in Europe, especially, there's a lot to like close out to the corner and keep him square. You want to keep him there. But if you get beat, get beat middle, you know, because mostly you're going to run into a big guy. Mm-hmm. And this is again very theoretic. So are you going to get it done to? close out in a no middle, no paint stance above the brakes and no baseline mindsets in the corners. I'll find out one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Coach, I'm really interested with those corner closeouts because you'll see a lot of teams try to attack through those corners with some automatic swing, swing. So why is it when you, if you're a no middle team going towards the baseline from a 45 drive is less dangerous than like you said, when you can, the guy from the corner can get baseline. I think it's not. That's where the gray zone comes into play. And also, like, again, if you were to do it, like I said, like, if you were to say, listen, the corners, we're going to say no baseline and above the break, we're going to say no build, no pain. Well, there is a gray zone of the break, right? So what do you do on the break? Why do you actually do it at all? Like the no build, no pain. To answer your question, there may be a slight difference because if you drive the ball from the 45, sometimes there may be somebody in the corner and you could like give some help from the corner a little bit. But to your point, the problem may be the same. Therefore, you know, teams also push middle. But, and I think this is also where sometimes we overthink things. At the end of the day, the no middle, no pain should just be a help to get something done and getting the something done is close out take away a shot and keep the guy in front so the no middle no paint does not mean let him drive baseline (laughs) it is a help right and i think one of the van gundy's said it on your podcast like does it really matter like keep the guy in front like that's the bottom line right i know this doesn't give a cookie cutter answer and a 100% satisfying answer. And I thought about it a lot. But again, there are a lot of coaches who say this and like my closeout rule, I don't care which foot is up. Like it's keep the guy in front. Then for a lot of guys, it turns into like, what's your strong foot? How do you feel more comfortable, right? On your closeout. And I think that's totally fine too, right? Like I think whatever you feel comfortable with. And at the same time, again, there will always be gray zones in what you do. A coach who I talked to lately said, defensively, if you like 80% of like what you're doing, don't worry too much about 20% that are gray zone because you've got to compete through the gray zone and there will be gray zones no matter what. In a system where we closed out to right-handed guys with our left hand up and to left-handed guys with our right hand up to always have the hand kind of in the shooting pocket. And I thought it was very effective. Now, 
This basically said, you have to know the report. You have to know if somebody left-handed or right-handed. You've got to do like on an individual tactic level, you've got to be sharp. And then you play that technical advantage, taking into account that sometimes you will not be in correct stances, which sometimes don't line up correctly with what you do in your pick and roll. You know, because on the left side of the floor, I'll be kind of in no middle, no paint on the right side. So it's, again, a gray zone, right? Like whatever you think gives you the better advantage and whatever you feel comfortable with, I think is very important. And understanding that there will be gray zones and guys have to compete. Coach, just on that point, when that situation comes up in a practice and a player says, hey, what do we do here? And it is a gray zone. How do you talk them through what you might do in some situation? Is it just a, hey, get it done type of thing? I would say get it done. And this is like the evolution of myself and as a coach. And get it done. A little bit, my experience has been that the better the player, the less he'll ask, the more he'll compete through it, and that's it. Like we had a lot of good and very good defensive teams that I've coached, had guys who defended, and it really didn't matter too much. It sounds profound, but that's what it is. And guys who want some excuses will go that route and question and question and question. From my experience, there is a lot for getting it done to not get into the spiral of explaining this, explaining this, explaining this within something which is a gray zone, which hasn't got black and white answers. How much does how you want to defend the pick and roll play into how you want to close out or maybe force a direction on the closeout in terms of if you're a hedge team or if you're going to play next for nail help or if you're going to be an ice or weak team? I would like to have it lined up with each other, more or less. And that's something that the no middle, no paint closeouts lined up with icing on the side. But at the same time, you're going to also close out if you push into the screen, whatever it may be, right? Hedging, next thing, you just brought it up. Well, probably you're not going to, or should I say, it's still a closeout, you know, and you're going to change feet for a pick and roll whether you push into the screen or you deny the screen on ice. So yes, I would ha- like to have it lined up everything perfectly, but also I think we have to understand that not everything will be 100% perfect and lined up with each other, you know, and I guess that's fine. Within your pick and roll defense, you know, however you choose to maybe tag or help on the roll, I feel like the game, you're also going to be faced with all like those two-on-one closeouts, or maybe that one guy's got to take two how much are you working on that? Are you telling him to close out to the ball, close out through the passing lane? What kind of is the, I guess, going back to the technique of a two-on-one closeout when you're that second help or the first help? I believe in closing out. I kind of like closing out into the passing lanes. To me, it has, and I, I haven't taught this a bunch, but you know, after like, you know, studying and watching, I really think there's a lot to closing out into the passing lanes. It looks like it stops the energy of the ball gives the guy who receives the ball one second to think about things and could gain an advantage back now again you're almost back to the point of well here you're closing out into a passing lane now you're giving away a middle drive that's where the game is imperfect right and it is imperfect it's just what it is it's imperfect you almost got to do whatever wins you the game and if it's not perfectly lined up with your theory well i'd rather not be perfectly lined up <laughs> yeah. with my theory and have the chance to win the game and right 
In a way, the theory and the way things are built up, I, again, I believe are highly, highly important and they should give you guidelines of like being able to fall back on things that you do automatically at a certain point in time and you don't have to think about. And again, there will be gray zones. But again, to answer your question, I really think in those two-on-one situations, like closing out into the passing lanes, like a lot of Spanish teams do it, it's a very, very, very good thing, especially with compressed space in Europe. The spacing topic is so big, like you just can't imagine if you haven't seen and lived both how big of a difference the spacing is from NBA G League to Europe. Therefore, I also think there is a little more, generally speaking, in Europe to pushing to the middle into crowds on a general level. Whereas in the NBA, yes, of course, also, but just keeping things on the side and at least like defining like one tighter space kind of makes sense because of the huge size of the floor. It's almost if you push middle in the NBA, you're really not pushing into a crowd because you've still got a huge ocean in front of you, you know, plus the rules that are very different, right? Like the nail health that is so prominent in Europe is as well in the NBA, but in the NBA, it is much more camouflage. It helps and it's good and it's very important, but I've got hard hard times believing that let's say a next defense like with perimeter rotations would really work in the NBA just because the space is so big in a next in Europe if you kick the ball ahead you really don't get an advantage that's what the next wants I still think the ocean is so big over there that if you kick it there will be advantages plus the rules are different as soon as you get your shoulder by a hip of a defender yeah it's going to be defensive foul it's really two games in a way Coach, this has been awesome so far. Thank you for your thoughts. We want to transition now to a game that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so for those that may be listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, ask you to sit one. Makes sense with our conversation already about substitution patterns. So we'll just keep that theme going. Coach, if you're ready, we will go ahead and dive right in here to this first question. Sure. So coach, the theme of this first question is things that you can only learn by doing. There's a lot of great coaching books and podcasts and things you can listen to and read, but there's certain things that you just have to live through it and you have to coach through it to really become good at it as a coach. And so start, sub, or sit, these three different areas of coaching that experience and going through it is most needed. So the first one is addressing your team. So having the confidence to stand up in front of a group of guys, halftime, post-game, whatever it is, and address your team. The second option is late-game play calling, knowing what to run, who to run it for down the stretch of a game. And the third is mid-season practice planning, knowing when you need to tune up a practice or tune down or the flow of your team, knowing what to do kind of mid-season. So start, sober, sit, those three options where experience is needed. So start would be the addressing the team, the sub, Difficult. I'd probably say the mid-season practice planning and then the sits, the end of game play calling. <laughs> okay. I strongly agree with what you say. Like I strongly agree with the general idea of this start, sub, and sit topic. I once, I don't know, read a quote, heard a quote, like I don't know who, who said it, but you actually only get better at coaching by coaching. It's really a big deal. Right, to do it. And right. I think there's something that sometimes underestimate. There's a it's like a lot of things, right? You guys with your podcast, like how much better are you now than you were like seven months ago? Very much better. <laughs> 
Don't you think? Like, I'm yeah, not yeah. judging by no means. I thought it was good at <laughs> yeah. all But, you know, you know what yeah, I mean? No, no, no. Right? But like, <laughs> whether somebody may see it on the outside or not, but you probably feel more, you know, better about certain things, right? Even if it's behind the scenes, editing things or whatever, like being more effective. And, well, why? Because you've been doing it, right? It's, <laughs> it's really the truth. And, yeah. And that's kind of similar with coaching. Like every craft, you've kind of got to do it to get better at things, right? Absolutely. Coach, all of these directions we could ask you on a follow-up are really interesting, but I'll ask you about the start, the addressing your team yeah. and the experience of just being able to stand in front of a group of men or women and address them and give all the, the direction and advice and whatnot. For you over the years, how did you feel like you developed that and get more comfortable in doing those kinds of things? I would say, generally speaking, there has to be a certain talent for it or a character trait, right? Like. If you're in school, right, in high school, and you've got to talk in front of the group, there are people who can do it a little better and, and people who really just don't like it, right? It, I think it has to do a little bit with being introvert or extrovert. So I do think that being a coach, you've got to be extrovert and got to have a certain like skill with that. That's where it kind of starts, right? To me, as time went by, and I've done this for some time, often less is more especially in long seasons. I have had these situations in the G League where you play 50 games in five months, which is like a quick, quick, quick schedule, you know, with a lot of stuff compressed. And in the EuroLeague last year, we played 82 games. And I think less is more is really, I mean, them like not hearing me at all times and also hearing different voices and being decisive, you know, choosing with when you're going to, be aggressive, raise your voice, lose it completely. You know, I, I really strongly believe you've got to be kind of controlled with that because otherwise it really loses its energy and its power. Yeah, less is more, you know. Coach, following up on when you're going to lose it as a coach, is it something that maybe as a coach is premeditated? Like you're upset at how the guys played and you go on a prize like, I'm going to send a, send an example or if they mess up, I'm going to lose it. You mean the Lads Taslo, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know what? The reality of it is to me now, the best ones for sure are the ones that come from within, like being who you are. And yeah, this guy seems to be the guy he is. I think that's a big, big topic, right? Generally speaking, and like not being fake. And therefore, the ones that I like most are the ones that really come from deep within, you know, like yeah. whatever it may be, right? Because I think those are the most powerful. Now, obviously, there are other situations where I want to say it's almost asked for, right? To lose yeah. it. And yes, I think there's time and space for that. Mm -hmm. right? I, I do believe. I do believe. But more powerful are the ones that are really like, you know, the ones that come from within, yeah. whatever the reason may be. And then again, I think this is like real psychology, talking about character traits, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's really it's about who you are, right? Generally speaking, and how you are. And then also it is about culture of in which culture are you moving? Which culture asks for what? Which culture accepts what? Accepts which language? Accepts which style of leadership? And finding the right mix there is the big key. Coach, after you lose it, how do you address the team the next time you see them? Do you address it all? Do you just move on? What's the next conversation with your team after you've blown up on them? Move on, to be honest, because it's part of it, right? Um, one thing. This has not happened to me lately. I want to say that 
I don't want to say things that I regret afterwards. And that's like on a personal level, mainly. That's what I wouldn't want to do, you know. But if that was to happen and it happened, then there is time and space for like, you know, getting that straight, you know, but with the person who whoever it happened with. But other than that, it's moving on, you know, it's part of it, right? All right, coach. Our next one, we've called this tough to defend. And I'm going to give you three baseline out of bounds situations. And so your start would be the toughest to defend. The first situation is a screen the screener action or they're running the shooter to the opposite corner away from the inbounder. The second one would be kind of that back screen, but with tempo where they, whether it's a small and a big or a big setting for a small, or they're coming with pace and setting that back screen. And then the last one would be where they kind of run a get action for the inbounder or the inbounder throws it and runs and sprints off the handoff. Okay, very good question. All of them are difficult to defend if you're not prepared. All of them are very much defendable if you're prepared. This, to me, is a clear scouting report. I always scout sideline and baseline. We always add them to the scout, you know, and walk them through. Like the key baseline and the key sideline, I think it makes sense because the sideline and baseline package of teams, like obviously is not like humongous, right? You can easily figure out what's the main, Mm -hmm. most often you can figure out what's the main thing. You know, I think with the first one, which is very often a late shot clock out of bounds, right? With the shooter running to the opposite corner, I think from a tactical standpoint, there's a lot to be said to, you know, squeeze the screener up and cut as a defender of the shooter, like cut, shoot the gap basically so the pass cannot be strung along the baseline from a tactical standpoint. Now, again, the better the opponents are, the more the shooter who comes to the corner, if he sees you're like shortcutting it on the baseline side, will just pop up towards the key. And now you talk about quality of players. But again, that's how I do it. Uh, The second one to me, with the back pick action down to the rim, right? And then something following. I always like to have the guy who's cutting towards the rim, the defender of him, pushing the offensive guy towards the basketball, like towards the inbounder and having the screener squeeze in the opposite side. So you're kind of breaking up that screen and then hopefully damage is taken away. And then I think on the third one, the biggest key is to trail out the inbound who's coming into the handoff, you know? And again, you know, it's no rocket science, but it is tactical preparation. And if you are not prepared for it, it will catch you. And that's what it is. And you'll have to live with some stuff because we can't cover everything. But that's a good question. That's good stuff. (laughs) Coach, I got a couple follow-ups on the yard in these, but the first one is your thoughts on what you do with the defender guarding the inbounder on baseline out of bounds, whether it's on the ball, off the ball, Generally speaking, I want him to take a step back and protect the rim. That's where it starts. A. B, there will be situations where he starts from protecting the rim and then shifts to the outside if the play is made to the ball side corner. But it always starts with protecting the rim. And then the third one, I would say, because teams do also switch players on baseline inbounds from the inbounder. I do not like to do that. In the past, it always messed things up. I don't like it. I like it more on the sidelines, but not so much on the baseline. And my other question is, it would depend on your team and whatnot, but just in general, a lot of like the screen, the screener actions or these difficult actions to guard on the baseline is a base defensive coverage. Are you 
switching a lot of the stuff? Are you trying to stay attached and forcing to an area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay attached and forced to an area. Okay. Generally speaking. My past, if you are capable of switching those things, probably nice. Theoretically, I haven't done it. I haven't got a lot of experience with switching off-ball screens, more with on-ball screens, but not so much with off-ball screens. Coach, I know it's an effective strategy, but weighing whether you should just rezone all baseline inbounds. Yeah, why not? I've never done it, but I've also, I haven't played too much zone in the past. So maybe a philosophical thing, right? But teams do it. And to be honest, interestingly enough, I think the higher the level gets, the less they do it Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I don't know. Then it comes down to scouting, right? So if we know the easy one, if we know a defense is zoning on the baseline, which, you know, has happened, well, then we'll prepare our baseline zone inbound and go from there, you know? So unfortunately, I want to say it comes down to scouting a lot. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want it to, you know, and it's a fine line, like especially with so many games coming. You don't want to go scout, scout, scout. It turns into mumbo jumbo and you, you know, all the thumb ups, thumb downs and three downs and three motions. You just like, you lose it. And I think you've got to stay true to what you do and take care to always touch it to what you do in order to do it well. But at the end of the day, a lot of scouting. Coach, we got one more start sub sit for you here. And so this one has to do with, I know that you're a a student of the game and you're always studying other coaches and players and tactics. And so the theme of this one is when you go and watch a practice of another coach or another team, what you're most interested when you watch that practice. So start, sub or sit, start would be what you're most interested in. The drills that that coach might run to teach a topic, the vocabulary that they use, or just the flow and intensity of the practice as a whole. I'd start the flow and then I'll sub the drills and then I will sit the vocabulary. So your start, the flow and intensity, when you've been to practices and you watch coaches, what are you looking at there? What interests you with the flow and intensity of a practice? Exactly what you say, the flow and intensity, or let's say more the flow. I think intensity is, uh, yeah, you know, the flow. The efficiency, very important. I strongly believe that the shorter you keep the guys in the gym, the better. Not practicing, but like getting stuff done efficiently because I really think like every minute is mileage, especially as you play 82 game season. It's just different. You know, it's different if you have three games a week, every shoot around, every walk through, every practice is extra, extra, extra. And I think being efficient and effective with those things is really, really, really important. So that's one thing I would closely look at. Now, efficiency, you kind of create by organization, right? So my organization, how quickly do you go from drill to drill? How well run are the drills? This comes down to the coaching staff. Those kind of things, you know, how efficient are you? I work with Chris Fleming, who's the lead assistant with Chicago. And I was his assistant coach with the German national team. And I work with a lot of really, really great coaches and even better people. And I'm proud of that. And I'm very thankful for that. And one of them is Chris. And Chris was extremely efficient. Like his practice was efficient, efficient. This efficiency came down to a lot of preparation and preparing his group, preparing the coaching staff, like walking through the practices, you know, and it's just 
in order to keep it short for the group, the invest of the coaching staff was really high, you know, and then you've got to kind of probably make a decision of like, what's the, you know, we're going to invest where, but that's something I look at. Speaking of efficiency and you mentioned it earlier that, you know, you have two basic drills for teaching the closeout. So your sub was the drills. I'm just wondering in a typical practice for you, maybe a typical season, I mean, how many drills do you really have that are core to what you do when you're teaching topics? I don't know. I think that like generally speaking, not too many. And then on a philosophical level, you've got to switch some things up in order to keep things spicy. And then again, yeah, no, it's important, right? Sometimes the quality of a drill helps you teach. And so it is very important, right? It is much more important what you teach and how you teach, but the vehicle of the drill can strongly help you with it, right? To answer your question, for each topic, there is a certain amount of drills. But you know what? Let's say, let's be, uh, let's come to it like a transition defense, let's say, right? I've been using three transition defense drills lately, and that's it. Out of the three, probably one is one I like the most. The second one is the one that we throw in to throw in something else and have a little bit of a different teaching point on it. And the third one is also a little bit of different focus, but also the least teaching and the most just running and getting out there and again, giving the team something else, you know, and that's it. So that's three drills out of one. I like one the most and, and that one probably is done the most and that's it. Going back to the efficiency of the drills and the conversation you'll have with your staff before the practice to make that drill efficient. Is it basically you're telling your staff members what we're doing and where to position them? Or are you giving them tasks? Like you be in charge of, this aspect of the drill or look out for our help side defense, you know, what are the conversations you're having before practice? So these drills or the practice in general is efficient and moving. To me, it comes down to overall organization. So let's stick with the transition defense. I'll have one coach who is in charge of focusing on the guards who you want to get sprinting back, getting back. The players will hear his voice consistently throughout the season in the drill work and in the game. And he's in charge of taking care of that. Now, obviously, I'm the guy who has to be accountable for it. And it's going to come down to me to have the guys do it. But he's the guy, the executing force and voice in practices. That guy often is also the guy for me who runs the transition defense drills. I like the more quality you have in the coaching staff, the better, the more the staff can run the drills, the more I can view and see and coach, right? So it goes hand in hand with overall organization of staff, staff responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. So thank you for playing that game with us. That was a lot of fun. Enjoyed your answers there. Coach, we got one more question for you before we do. Thank you very much for your time today. This was a lot of fun for Pat and I, so we appreciate it. Hey guys, thank you very much. Keeping you really put together a good platform like of knowledge and and I, what I think is very pleasant is that you create this, but you don't produce yourselves in a way like, you know, it's, it's not about you two guys. And that's the quality of what you guys are doing, you know, and I don't know, like this is philosophical. We could have another thing going, but in this time of age of social media and everybody putting stuff out and being very, very important, you know, like, I think this is very pleasant, guys. Thank you, Thank coach. you coach. Really appreciate that. Coach, to close here, it's a question that we ask all the guests. And 
You've had a great career thus far in coaching and wondering what one of the best investments in your coaching career has been. Not an investment, but uh, obviously <laughs> my wife uh, is, is <laughs> the investment is wrong, but sure. like very, very important because it's just what it is. This is how it is. You know, this is a very unregular journey, you know, like being a professional basketball coach takes you to places and takes you to bright places, to dark places, to interesting places, less interesting places. Overall, it is though a lot of movement and a lot of pressure on my wife and on my kids. And if you don't have the right person who can handle that, like it's just not going to work. So that for sure is number one. There is no question about it. There's a lot to be said about it. You know, it's not only moving around the globe, you know, sacrificing a lot. It's also the pressure that goes with it. You know, the pressure of, I don't know, the reflecting pressure that is on me that then reflects on her, you know, it's, I mean, you know, she wants me to be successful and, uh, you know, so <laughs> it's also emotional, right. positive and negative, you know, it's how this job goes. So no, there's, there's no question about it. And then I would say that like investment, I would really say that being curious and asking questions, I have always done. I really believe in it. I think if you ask somebody a question whose answer you're very interested in, like, there are rarely people who, if they see you're really prepared and you're really serious about this question, who will not answer the question. You know, it's, I think it's a human thing. And I really strongly believe in it. Like, ask questions. I've gotten lucky with the coaches I've worked for and with the people I've worked for. Like, really lucky. But also, I kind of try to choose it as much as you can. You know, I try to look for situations that were interesting for me and i think the situation is more important than the status than the like how should i say the job title you know the lead i think the situation is the key thing you know doing things that perhaps are not normal but benefit you of, like getting your questions answered you know i think it's really important thank you so much for listening to this episode Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Well, we're all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>